So if you have a Bible or you can look on with someone else, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we're in the midst of a series right now in Colossians. We're going through the book and we're in a series right now dealing with the family, the Christian home. We called it Christian Living in the Home. And in my quest this week to come up with more information about marriage and more information about husbands and wives, not that I need more truth, the Bible says enough, but I like to know what's being said out there and what the popular opinions are and what's being promoted, perhaps for, by way of contrast. I came across a particularly interesting book that caught my attention. It's called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by John M. Gottman. Listen to the subtitle. That even caught my interest more so. A Practical Guide from the Country's Foremost Relationship Expert. That really caught my attention. The Country's Foremost Relationship Expert. That sounds pretty significant. One reviewer described the book in this way. This book is the culmination of his life's work packed with questionnaires and exercises whose effectiveness has been proven in his workshops. Listen to this. The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work is the definitive guide for anyone who wants their relationship to attain its highest potential. It's the definitive guide. So I pause for a moment and I say, I don't mean any disrespect to Dr. Gottman. I don't mean any disrespect to the reviewer. I don't know either one of them. But I would have to say that today, if you have a Bible and if you have it open and if you're willing to listen, you're going to hear something better. You're going to hear not from the country's foremost relationship expert. How about the universe's foremost relationship expert? God, remember, is the one who designed marriage from the very beginning, before sin ever started, before it ever happened. God designed marriage. He brought a man and he brought a woman. He brought them together. He sanctified the marriage. He blessed them. It was a positive thing. It was a good thing. It was a perfect thing. God described it as very good. He's the one that knows all about marriage. He is the expert. And the amazing thing is, if we have his word and we're willing to uh, hear it, we're willing to apply it, we can have the most significant relationships ever possible as a husband and a wife. This word, the word that you hold in your hand, I hope you realize that, is truly, and I quote from that book cover, the, def- the definitive guide for anyone who wants a relationship to attain its highest potential. Right? Isn't that freeing to know that? Isn't that exciting to know? I mean, don't you want to have the best marriage possible? If you don't, shame on you. I mean, that's what we want to have, right? I want to have total fulfillment in my family life. And I hope that's what you want to have. Don't we want happiness and fulfillment and rich blessing to function the way it would be best? Well, absolutely, that's what we want. And we can actually turn to God and turn to His Word and find out what he says about the institution he started, the institution he owns the rights to, the one he designed in utter perfection. And we can say, God, help us. We want to understand that. So I can guarantee you that you will hear the most profound commentary ever on marriage if you listen to God's Word today. And so if you're in Colossians chapter 3, let's go ahead and see what we've been seeing by way of review. We're looking at the family here in verses 18 through 21. And last week we looked at verse 18 and it addressed the wives. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then this morning we're going to look at husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at children in verse 20 and fathers and I believe parents also in verse 21. God's perspective on the family. It's wonderful to see it laid out there that clear for us. Let me give you the outline for this morning as we deal with husbands. If you'd like to have something to follow along with. Uh, Men, I think that's probably not an option for you. You do need to follow along. 
Um, <laughs> this is for you guys. I promised the wives last week that I would let the guys have it today. And guys, you're going to get it. Um, <laughs> many times I say, you know, I study all week and I get convicted. And I always say that and say, now I have to, to release and let go and let you share on some of the, in some of the conviction. I feel that way like never before, man. <laughs> this is real life where we are in life, and I'm ready to uh, unleash on you, so to speak, so we can share in this together. And, and I don't see it as a negative thing. We'll talk more about that. It's all positive. This is the best God would have for us. I want us to long for these kinds of uh, er- characteristics in our marriage. Number one, we find two points of instruction to these men. You wouldn't need to be a Bible scholar to figure them out. In verse 19, there's one command. It says, Husbands, love your wives. There's the command. Husbands, you love your wives. The second point of instruction, husbands, do not be embittered against your wives. You see clearly there in verse 19 also. Notice one's positive, one's negative. Both are commands for us. And I'll remind you one more time, men. Remember, if this book is what it claims to be, it claims to be the Word of God, and that's what we would believe here at Omaha Bible Church, uh, the verdict isn't out on whether or not we have to follow this, right? I mean, this isn't a time for us to decide, well, I think I may choose to follow this command for me in verse 19. No, if it's really God speaking in God's Word, it's authoritative, it's binding, and it's not an option. And so it causes me to approach this with a rather sober attitude. It's a non-negotiable. We can't walk away today and say, I think I may choose to implement that in my life. (laughs) It's not my perspective at all. I must implement this in my life if I want God's best for my life. Non-negotiable. Now, before we actually look at the passage, I want to remind you of what I reminded the wives of last time. And that's really where your perspective comes from that brings you to this point. When we come to these commands, and we're looking at so many commands in chapter 3, we'll look at more in verse chapter 4. Where does the drive come for this? Where does the perspective for, come for us to actually follow these commands? And I mentioned last week, it really comes from the very beginning of chapter 3. The very beginning of chapter 3 and the first, oh, four verses or so give us the general perspective that we need to have in our minds before we come to these particulars. So look with me, if you would, briefly. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, stop, we didn't get very far. I know this is review for so many of you, but here's what we've seen in Colossians. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's telling us a lot about Christ. He's telling us a lot about what Christ did and who Christ is, and it's so wonderful and splendid about Christ. Chapter 2, we also find out that if we believe in Christ, we can be saved, we can be forgiven of our sins, we can be made spiritually whole, spiritually complete. You walk away from the first two chapters saying, yes, Jesus Christ is everything. And, because I've believed in Him by His grace, I'm spiritually complete. So ends the story. No. The story's just begun. Well, we've learned a lot of facts. Then what happens in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we come across all of these commands. Now there's a call to do something about it. That's why it says, therefore, therefore, in light of who Christ is and in light of what He's done for you, do this. Act this way. And what does He say in chapter 3, verse 1? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you've been saved, if you've risen with Him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And I always want to remind you of that because that's the general perspective. We've been called now to not follow our own philosophy of living. We've been called now not to follow the philosophy of living we find out from uh, the local quote-unquote expert or the most popular book or what's on television or what's in the newspaper. 
we're not supposed to follow those philosophies anymore. Or maybe our own philosophies. I'm going to follow my way of being a husband. Or my way of being a wife, you might say. Or my way of being a child. That's what we used to do. Because we didn't know God. We weren't Christians yet and we just followed whatever. Now there's a radical life change. Now you've been forgiven of your sins if you're a Christian. Now you have a whole new hope perspective. Everything's different. You're a new creation. Therefore, seek the things above. My perspective is now heavenly. I want to do what Christ says, follow His will, not my will anymore, or not the will of someone else. And again, I know that's review, but I can't emphasize that enough. That's the general perspective on life now. You should look at these commands that we're looking at here and see a difference between these commands and what the world is telling you. Because we don't march to that drumbeat anymore. It is different. But what we're trying to do is go back to God's best, which is really pre-fall, pre-sin, His design for the family to begin with. I hope that helps your perspective. I'll keep reminding you of that. And if these things are impossible for you and you want nothing to do with these commands, well then I would also encourage you to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and deal with the issue of, have you been raised up with Christ? Because if you have, this is God's perfect will for you. Are we ready to move on? All right, let's do that. Let's move on. Let's look at this first point of instruction directed to you husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, let's stop for a moment. Let's make it more personal. Let's put it in the first person, husbands. If you're writing this down, let's make it first person. Not husbands, love your wives. How about, I must love my wife. That's better, isn't it? The wives are saying, yeah, that's better. I'll guarantee you that's better. Amen to that. Husbands, you need to write down, I must love my wife. In order to be in God's will, to be doing God's will, you must love your wife. And I would have to say that if you're not following this command, and it is a clear command in the Scripture, you are in sin. I'm in sin if I'm not doing this. It is a command. I must love my wife if I'm going to be doing the will of God. How many times do we want to talk about the will of God? I'm just waiting on the will of God. I wonder what the will of God is for my life. Sometimes we don't know. What job should I take? Where should we move? On and on and on. And you don't have chapter and verse. But I can tell you God's will for your life when it comes to your family. I can say it with total dogmatism because God's word is so clear. Husbands, you must love your wife. Not an option. So stop searching for God's quote-unquote will somewhere and all these unknowns and at least work on the knowns, okay? Let's work on these things that are so clear this is what we're called to do. Husbands, love your wives. Now, Notice a couple of things about this word love. We'll spend a few minutes here. It's the classic Greek word, the classic Christian word, agape love. You, I've heard that often if you've been a Christian for very long and you've been studying the Bible at all. Agape love. Agape love is sacrificial love. It's true Christian love. You have to give something in order to do this kind of love. If I can give you just a few points of grammar here that should help you that's not in your English Bible, it is in the present tense. That means it is a continual, habitual action. It's the pattern of your life. Husbands, love your wives once a week at least, whether she's deserving or not. No, that's not the implication. Husbands, love your wives uh, most of the time. No, it's husbands, love your wives all of the time. It should be your habit. It should be your pattern. When someone looks at your marital relationship and they observe what you, you do with your wife, you should be characterized by a man who loves his wife, sacrifices for his wife. And notice it is a command. It's not a suggestion. Oh, those divine suggestions. No, it's a command. God says you must do this. Not an option. I must do this. Good definition I'm going to read for you for this word love. It really stuck with me. Agape is the love of intelligent purpose. The love that spends and is spent for its object. 
It's intelligent purpose. It's something you must make your mind up to do. You don't fall into love, this kind of love. No, this is intelligent purpose. You make your mind up, you're going to sacrifice for your wife. There are different Greek words for love used. One word in the New Testament is eros, where we get the English word erotic. That kind of love is pretty much all about self. It's all about taking. Okay, if I can be simplifying here. Eros love is taking kind of love. That's not the love here. There's another Greek word used in the New Testament, phileo, where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a good description because phileo does mean brotherly love, and that's a giving and taking kind of love. That's another kind of love we're called to exercise. But different from a taking kind of love, different from a giving and taking kind of love, is agape love, and it's a giving kind of love. It's not a giving and taking kind of love. You can love your wife, husbands, as you're commanded to do, and you may never receive anything back. And that needs to be your motivation. You're going into this whole thing with the mindset of giving, 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 and I'm not waiting for my return. That's hard, isn't it? I I tend to, and I think all of us do, even as saved people who struggle with sin, I want to give because it benefits me. It's not the biblical command to husbands. Give with no expectation whatsoever to receive anything back. That's pretty applicable, I would say. True or false? I have to give you a quiz here. I haven't given you one for a while. True or false? Agape love can sometimes be costly. Class? (laughs) Agape love can sometimes be costly. False? Wrong answer. Agape love is always costly. I'm trying to trick you. Every single time, always, it does cost you something. And if you're giving a kind of love that doesn't cost you something, it's not agape love. It might be a different kind of love, but it's not this kind of love, husbands. Husbands, this passage is for you. This passage is challenging you to love your wife. That guarantees sacrifice. It guarantees you are going to be costing yourself something. It's a challenge. We know it costs because of two reasons. It's defined, agape love as a sacrificial kind of love, but also by the example. What's the ultimate example of agape love? Why do we call it Christian love to begin with? It's Christ, right? He died and sacrificed himself, and that's where we get this whole concept. There would be no agape Christian kind of love if we didn't have the example of the cross and Christ dying for us and rising again. Agape love. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, been a Christian very long, you know the passage I'm thinking of already that talks about Christ's sacrificial agape love and it relates it as an illustration for us husbands. We need to have the same kind of love. What passage is that? It's Ephesians chapter 5 and I do want you to go ahead and turn there with me. We're in Colossians and so if you back up two books to the left through Philippians and then Ephesians, we'll just spend a brief time this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. We did the same thing with the wives last week. We looked at Ephesians 5 for more elaboration, and I want to do that this morning. Let's let's look at this wonderful example. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. We just saw that, but then notice this. I underlined these two words. Just as Christ also loved the church. And, more underlining here, gave himself up for her. Husbands, your example is a big one. My example is a big one. In fact, I don't even know how to even explain this other than let's have a major study on the cross of Christ and what all is entailed there, and we're not going to do that this morning. That Christ died for sinners who were not lovely, they were unlovely. Romans 5, they were God's enemies. That's the kind of love I'm supposed to have for my wife. She's not your enemy. 
But that's the ultimate kind of love you're supposed to have for just as Christ also loved the church. Let's go down briefly through this passage. Let's go down to verse 28. 28, it says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Then down in verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. Say, what's all that about? Again, in one word, sacrifice. He's talking, he talks about how he's really talking about the church, but nevertheless, let's talk about husbands, and they're intertwined and inseparable. Think about it for a minute, men. You do love yourself. Ephesians 5 affirms that. No one ever hated his own flesh. You do love yourself. We don't have to get all wrapped up in the psycho babble that says, well, once I learn how to love myself, boy, then I can sure be a good husband and love others. That's unbiblical to the nth degree. Because Ephesians 5 says, you do love yourself. I do love myself. We all do. And we're living proof every day. What do we do? We take care of ourselves. We sleep. We eat. We go work out. We take this body through all these things. We shave, we bathe, we do all these things. Some people don't do those things. And ultimately, we'd have to say, those are for selfish reasons. Right? Amen to that. (laughs) But we take care of this thing we call ourselves. We love ourselves. And so he's calling us to treat our wives in the very same way. As if she were one with you. She is, right? One flesh. We're called to do the very same thing when we love our wives. Perhaps R. Kent Hughes sums it up the best when he says this. Don't quote me out of context here. Marriage is a call to die. That's what I don't want you to quote me out of context to say. Marriage is a call to die. And a man who does not die for his wife does not come close to the love to which he is called. Christian marriage vows are the inception, the beginning of a lifelong practice of death, of giving over not only what you have, but all that you are. End of quote. I agree with him. That's what Ephesians 5 is talking about. It's a call to die. Men, you've been called to sacrifice yourself and to die because you love your wife so much and you're going to to use the example of Christ's death. It's an unceasing call to sacrifice. Now, sometimes we think, oh no, what have I gotten into? Why didn't they warn me about this when when somebody shared the gospel with me? I mean, why didn't they tell me about this before I got saved and got into Christianity? Because this sounds like a big bummer. I mean, nothing for me? It's all about dying and sacrificing? What kind of God is this? Some kind of cosmic killjoy that just wants to spoil all my manly fun? Unfortunately, sometimes that that thought does flood into our minds. Remember, God created marriage before sin ever happened. Those are just my my excess sin thoughts that are hanging on from my old unsaved life. If we could only break free from that and go back to to Genesis and see, they were perfectly happy. Perfectly, perfectly, perfectly. I can't even fathom that. No struggles. Perfect marriage. Total fulfillment. Everything was wonderful. No arguments. I take it that God knows what true happiness is and how to bring it about in our life. And what he's saying is, die for that wife sacrifice for her because she's one with you and it only makes sense doesn't it that you would take care of yourself and now she's part of you a good perspective challenge for us God isn't some kind of cosmic killjoy he wants us to be totally fulfilled in his plan husbands how are you doing do you sacrificially habitually continually sacrificially 
love your bride? Is that a reality in your life? Maybe I'm asking the wrong people, right? (laughs) Maybe I should ask the wives, but I won't do that. I'm afraid of the answer. It's a must if you're a Christian or if I'm a Christian. One great example that I read about a man who I think truly did love his wife at the end of her life and towards the end of his life was a man by the name of Robertson McQuilkin. Some of you may have heard that name before because he used to be the president of Columbia Bible College. His wife Muriel was suffering toward the end of her life with advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. March 1990, Dr. McQuilkin announced his resignation in this letter. Listen carefully, men (laughs) especially. Listen to how he resigned at the end of his time and wanting to spend time with his wife. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health. This is his resignation letter, by the way. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry, uh, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. Now listen to this. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. The decision was made, get this, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distress and frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. End of letter. That's, that's great, isn't it? What an example of a godly man. Maybe that's for all of us men who think we're doing a pretty good job. I think maybe that's what we call a perspective check. Say, would I do that? Is, would I do that for my wife? I've been called to sacrifice for her and do anything for her. What a great, great example. Husbands, love your wives. That's the command of Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives. Sacrifice for your wives. Now some of you, silently, carefully, men, might have an objection. We wouldn't want to offer the objection now, but you might have it in your head. You might think, you know, my wife, it's not always easy to love her because she's not always deserving of my sacrifice. And with great sarcasm, I would like to say, what? Not deserving of your sacrifice? Notice Colossians 3.19 again. Let's talk about deserving. Is there any qualification here? Is there, any, is there anything even like that that's going to give you an out? 
Colossians 3.19. Oh yeah, let's read this with great sarcasm. Husbands, love your wives when they are godly and deserving. No. There's no qualification, is there? She could be the most ungodly person on the face of the earth. And guess what, men? The command doesn't change. It's the same. Or she could be the most godly person in the whole world. Husbands, love your wives. It has absolutely nothing to do with her character. Wow. And remember, too, as I reminded you already, Ephesians 5. Oh, yeah, we as the church, we sinners, hating God, shaking our fists at God, Romans 5. We sure were godly and deserving when Christ died for us. Wrong answer every time. The example is you could live with anyone and fulfill Colossians 3.19. You could obey Colossians 3.19 perfectly and again be married to the worst person in the whole world. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's a big challenge for us. Another objection might be, well, my wife isn't very submissive to my leadership. I mean, she wasn't here last week and I got her the tape and you know, I told her all about what the Bible says, but she's just not really there. Come on, men, you probably think it sometimes, even if you're not willing to fess up. Well, nevertheless, the challenge to the wife is there, and it has nothing to do with her husband. But today's not for the wives, today's for the husbands. Again, Colossians 3.19, men, doesn't say, Husbands, love your wives when they're fulfilling God's perfect plan for their life. No, it says, Husbands, love your wives, period. And we all know, I think, men, that we'd probably be better off working at being godly, loving leaders And it might be a whole lot easier for our wives to follow. I think great advice, and I think it comes from uh, biblical truths, looking at all these passages that deal with husbands and wives. Great advice for both of us, great advice for wives, great advice for us husbands, would be let's spend less time concerning ourselves with what they are or not doing and spend more time talking about ourselves and what we are or are not doing. That's the biblical challenge. There's nothing in these verses that talk about uh, some type of, you know, ways out. Again, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord if they are godly, loving leaders who are fulfilling God's will in their life. No. What I really want to do is spend less time concerning myself about my wife and spend more time concerning myself about me. Because that would be a biblically balanced approach to this whole thing. I need to worry, you know, think about kids sometimes. What do they do? You know? They both get in trouble and the finger goes to the other person. And somehow it's this blame-shifting, unbiblical kind of idea that it's not my fault. Well, we laugh at that and we give them a lecture and say, Johnny, you're responsible for your own actions. That's how it is for us too, men. You are responsible for your own actions and you're going to stand before God one day and He's going to say, did you do what I told you to do? It's a challenge for us. I don't want to stop hiding behind those kind of excuses. Men, do you love your wives? The exciting thing is, that is God's plan. And the exciting thing, too, is to see our lives are going to change. I want, if my life doesn't change as a result of this study, if your life doesn't change, I think there's something wrong. Check your spiritual pulse, because I know we haven't arrived. So a lot of times we can respond to these studies differently. Sometimes it's hard to respond in a tangible way. Not today, guys. Tangible. Uh, right now, even where you sit, and maybe when you leave, and maybe tonight you need to be you know, alone with your wife, confessing your you know, sin-sickened self or whatever. If we need to do that, then we need to do that. Very, very good opportunity for us to be doers of the word, even if it hurts. Let me ask you, men, what are you doing to love your wife? This is hard. 
What are you doing to love your wife? You say, what do you mean? What do you mean? I don't have to do anything. I just love her. I mean, I would do anything for her. My question for you is not that, though. What are you doing to love your wife? And you say, how can you ask it that way? I can ask it that way because the love here is a verb. It's doing something. You can't agape love your wife without doing something for her. It's impossible. That's convicting. I can't say, well, I love my wife and I've always felt that way. This kind of love isn't a feeling. This is a doing kind of love. So you could even come up with a list and say, what am I doing to show sacrificial love for my wife? Oops, list is pretty short. Guess maybe I'm not really excelling in that area. So I think that's a fair question. Men, what are you doing to love your wife? It should be tangible, touchable, real life. Someone said to me after first service, Natalie was sick this morning, so Molly wasn't here at first service, and they said, that was unfair, your wife's not here. <laughs> You're saying all that stuff. Well, I'm busted. <laughs> she is here now. So, Sacrificial love, it's doing something. Well, let's move on to the next command here. And I think loving is the purposeful prerequisite. We have to do this first. But now the second and final point of instruction to you husbands, do not be embittered against your wives, but let's personalize that also. I must not be embittered against my wife. Make it real, guys. I must not be embittered against my wife if I want to be in God's will. We see it in verse 19. And do not be embittered against them. It's a prohibition. Don't do it. Again, some grammar on this. This is a present tense again. This is not just a one-time thing. You are not supposed to be embittered against your wife. That should be a mark of your life a characteristic of your life. And it is a command, again, it's not a divine suggestion. It is a command. Now, literally, you could translate it, stop being bitter, if you presently are. Or you can translate it as, do not get in the habit of being bitter against her. What is this embitterment? You can define it as sharp. You can define it as harsh. Maybe a better English concept for us, and I think it rightly represents the term, is irritated. Now, I realize that uh, you husbands are sinners, as I am, and your wife is a sinner, as saved as she may be, and you, you know, produce offsprings who are sinners, and that complicates the family a little bit, doesn't it? So I realize there's going to be a time where you may not like something your wife does, and I know there are times when a wife doesn't like something her husband does. It's going to happen. But this passage is, again, present tense. Don't let this be the habit of your life. Sure, there may be a conflict, and what do you do? You solve the conflict, and you go to each other, and you get it worked out, but it shouldn't stay there. Don't let it be the habit. Don't be embittered against your wife. And since we're, none of us have a problem with this, we can move on, right? Oh, forget about applying that. This is not a problem. No, it can be a problem. Let me ask you this question, men. Do you hold grudges against your wife? If I were to ask you to write a list, and I'm not, okay, I think that would be unbiblical. But if you were to write a list about things that irritate you about your wife and things you want to just kind of bother you about her, what would you put on the list? The reason I brought it up is because if you put anything down on that list, you got problems fulfilling Colossians 3.19. That's why I said don't write the list. We shouldn't be able to come up with those things. Maybe they come about again because of our sin, but those are things we pray about and give over to the Lord and they're not part of our life. If you can come up with a list, you're already in trouble with Colossians 3.19. And then again, it's time to do business with God and get rid of that. We can't hold grudges against our wives. We can't be embittered against them. I think it's so good. Every time I ever do any kind of premarital instruction, uh, I encourage uh, husbands and wives dealing with their communication and how they treat one another. And this whole idea of being embittered against them, it's so real. And it comes so naturally 
for us as sinners. We just don't like certain things that other people do. And you know your wife better than anyone else. And she knows you better than anyone else. But think back to what happens on that wedding day. Maybe that's a good perspective check. Here you are. You're going to stand up in front of the church and you're going to stand here and she's going to stand here and I'm going to stand here, you know, or whatever. All your friends, your best friends, all your family, everyone, the church family, and more importantly, before God Himself. And what do you do when you stand up there? You say such wonderful things to each other and about each other. It's like you have flowers, you know, coming out of your mouth. And it's so, uh, so wonderful. And, and you're basically saying, I love this person more than anyone in the whole world. And I think you should do all those things. And I'm committed to that person for life, thick and thin, no matter what. I love this person. I'm committed to them. And then to think that we would have the kind of conversations we would have in the car or in the home, that you would be willing to treat this person worse than you would treat a stranger. Some, something doesn't fit, does it? It's inconsistent. It's totally inconsistent. I wish we could... So, well, maybe I know some people tape their weddings. It might be good to watch it every year. But watch it. Read your vows. And better yet, read the Scripture and read Colossians 3.19. It says, Do not be embittered against your wife. Remember, you love her more than anyone else. That's what you told everyone. And that's what God wants you to do as well. A good challenge for us, I think. Well, let me offer an illustration and then some points in closing. And then I think the challenge is just going to be to do this. One illustration I think it really stuck in my head regarding this kind of not being embittered and also loving uh, comes in the marital relationship of a man. I would not say he's a Christian. I just admire the fact that he was married to his wife for life and he loved her. And that's Winston Churchill. I'm fascinated by his life and reading about him. Winston Churchill was in, in England. He's at a formal banquet at the end of his life, a very old man. And he's there with his wife. His wife is sitting next to him, his wife Clemmy. And there they are. And here's the question they're asking all of these dignitaries that are sitting there. And he's going to be last. If you could not be yourself, who would you choose to be? That was the question. Pretty fascinating question. And as I read it, Winston Churchill, he's the one who's really the most dignified. And everyone wanted to know what he was going to say. He's last. Who would you be? Is he going to say Julius Caesar? Is he going to say Napoleon? Some kind of power person? And it comes to Churchill. And he stood up to give his answer. And he said, If I could not be who I am, I would most likely be... And here he paused. He took his wife's hand, had her stand with him, and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. I thought, hey, that's good. That's good. Sorry, guys, hours before Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> you have a few hours to make all your wrongs right, I guess, in all of this. But uh, I thought, you know, I wouldn't say he's a Christian man, but what an example of saying, I'm going to love my wife for life and sacrifice for her and not be embittered against her. Well, let me just say a final word about being embittered because I think this is something probably all of us struggle with. I think our, our tendency as we approach the Christian life and as married Christian people... Our tendency is, again, as I alluded to earlier, on the other person. And we want that other person to become godly. If they become all that God wants them to be, boy, then I'm going to be all that God wants me to be. We pray for, I think we tend to pray for their godliness, especially when it comes to roles, more than we pray for ourselves. And we're just waiting on them. Someday, God, as soon as she's there, boy, I can be a great compliment to her. And wives, maybe you think that way too. You know, again, it's not the biblical perspective. 
If that's your perspective, it's unbiblical and wrong. And you're going to be frustrated. It's going to be very frustrating. The biblical perspective, again, is you be all that you need to be before God and leave it there. And yes, I I hope you do pray for your spouse's spiritual growth and development, but the focus really should be on you and fulfilling these roles. And I think that's something we need to be challenged with and a good perspective for us. Let me end on a few questions for you men. Here are some questions I want you to write down if you can do that. Wives, if you have a pencil handy, you can give it to that husband if you want to do that. I hear the paper. I know all of you other men who are not writing are just going to get the tape because you want to, you know, really soak it in, right? These are not inspired, but they are penetrating. First question. Is my wife, this is a long one, is my wife more like Christ because she is married to me? Is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me? Isn't that the intention of Ephesians 5? That right there would be enough to work on. Next question. Or, is she like Christ in spite of me? Next question. Has she shrunk from his likeness because of me? In other words, is she less godly because she's married to me? Next question. Do I sanctify her or hold her back? Ephesians 5, you're supposed to have a sanctifying influence. Next question, is she a better woman because she is married to me? Is she a better woman because she's married to you? She should be, and you should be a better man because you're married to her. I had to sneak one in there for you wives. And finally, is she a better friend? Is she a better mother? And the list could go on. Those are good questions for us. We want to be godly men. And men, let me challenge you to get your perspective and get your mind off of the someday approach. Someday, 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 someday you're going to be at the end of your life and you will have done nothing. Uh, The moment is now. It's here now. Someday is today. Do you need to go and do business with God and do business with your wife? Then you need to go home and do that. Uh, The time is now, I would say, for us to change and be doers of the Word and not only hearers. It's a challenge for us because we hold the Bible as an authority and we say we believe every word it says and we want to do what it says. And now it's getting personal because it's getting into your home and it's getting into my home. But how great it would be for us to be used by God to be more godly and to have a more fulfilled marriage. And How about if God even uses us to draw other people to Himself because we're different? We can have that kind of testimony. This is really what I want so desperately and so badly even if I don't always realize it. I'll end with this. Some of you may say, I don't know if I like Christian living in the home. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know if this really fits in my life. Well, I already mentioned this earlier, but the reason it wouldn't make sense in your life is perhaps because you haven't gone to Colossians 3.1 and you haven't been raised up with Christ. That's a perfectly understandable explanation. You don't want to follow this and it doesn't make any sense to you because... You lack the spiritual life that comes in trust from trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And I would challenge you to do that first. You'll frustrate yourself to no end trying to be a godly man or a godly woman without Christ in your life. That's where the power is to trust in His forgiveness, His sacrifice, and then it only makes sense to live a different life. 
Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for uh, the wonderful truth even regarding marriage, regarding husbands, regarding wives. And I pray for all of us together as we want to grow in respect to our salvation that we would be less consumed with the other person and more consumed with ourselves as we want to obey you. I pray that you might build up and raise up godly families in this church, that they would be good examples for us who are younger in the faith and younger with younger children and younger marriages, that we would have many, many great examples. And Lord, I pray for those who are younger working on being godly, that they might be established firmly in the faith, that in the days to come when there are more families who come, they can help them to grow in respect to their salvation. Pray that you would do mighty and wonderful things in our midst. We acknowledge, God, that we can do none of these things on our own power. It only comes because you are gracious and you've graciously given, given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to do these things. May we, with our entire lives, honor you. We look forward to a great night even tonight as we focus on you once again. In Jesus' name, amen.